Shalom. Not bad. Now, how to make a nice Jewish boy feel like he's right at home. It's a joy uh, to be here with you once again. I was here uh, Wednesday night and uh, giving an update on a project that we just finished called Behold Your God. And um, now I want to um, share with you from the Word today. Uh, I'm curious, how many of you were here when I was here the first time about a year, a year and a half ago? Oh, good. Am I any taller? <laughs> no, just older. <laughs> oh, well. Even so, it's a joy. Thank you for inviting me back. Um, before I open up the Word of God, I'd like to do a couple of things. The first is... Um, I'd like to uh, give you a very quick update for those of you who weren't able to be with us on Wednesday evening. Let me just tell you briefly about uh, how the Lord blessed this project uh, through your prayers uh, and by standing with us. A little bit of history. Um, Eighteen years ago, we started a project uh, ministry-wide called Behold Your God based on Isaiah 40, verse 9, where God says through the prophet Isaiah, uh, get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And we decided to take those words very, very seriously. The first phase involved uh, launching um, evangelistic, high-profile evangelistic outreaches, campaigns, in every city outside of Israel that had a Jewish population of 25,000 Jewish people or more. That took us to uh, 66 cities, 66 campaigns, in seven years, uh, and the fruit was uh, extremely rewarding. But that was just phase one. Phase two started in 2008, where um, we decided to do something similar inside of Israel. So we divided the country into its 12 geographical areas and uh, launched high-profile uh, high evangelistic campaigns in every one of those regions, By uh, 2018, we had covered 11 of the regions. One region remained, Greater Jerusalem. And so for the entire month of May, uh, 200 of us from our offices from around the world gathered in Jerusalem, spent the month um, proclaiming the gospel in, in Jerusalem itself. We divided into 10 different teams because there's so many different types of Jewish people in Jerusalem. I was uh, with the Russian-speaking team. Ruth and I lived uh, in Russia and Ukraine for many, many years, so uh, we speak Russian. Um, Just to give you a quick summary, at the end of the month, uh, all together, the teams had interfaced with um, over 5,000 Israelis. Um, We had gathered over uh, 1,700 contacts for follow-up work. Over 200,000 Jewish men and women uh, checked out our web pages in in Hebrew, in English, and in Russian. Um, We saw 58 Jewish people give their hearts to the Lord during the campaign itself, and um, another five or more have given their hearts to the Lord since then in the follow-up work. So it's a very, very exciting season um, in Israel. The goal ultimately is to see the establishment of an ongoing Jews for Jesus presence in Jerusalem. We have a very strong presence in Tel Aviv, which is actually the largest city in Israel. But we need, for historical reasons, as well as theological reasons, we need to have um, 
uh, an ongoing presence in Jerusalem. That's something that you can pray about. Um, but there's something else. Scripture says that the word will go forth from Jerusalem. It doesn't stop there. Uh, the Jerusalem campaign of Behold Your God was not a grand finale. It was a launching pad. I want to see it spill over into Europe. We have a very good work going on throughout Europe and the former Soviet Union. But a lot of people don't know, there are 22,500 Israelis living in Berlin. Berlin. Germany. There are also 90,000 Syrian refugees living in Berlin, Germany. I can see a day when there will be Jews for Jesus from Israel and Syrian former Muslims for Jesus standing shoulder to shoulder with German Christians proclaiming the gospel. You see, the world says that this kind of gospel partnership is impossible. But the gospel says that it has to be. That it has to be. I can see that. Uh, I'll tell you more about um, plans both for for Israel as well as for Europe um, before I finish today because I very much want your prayers. In fact, um, Thank you, Pastor Lewis, for pointing out the card. Let me draw your attention to this card once again. In fact, uh, bend the card, would you, on uh, the perforated line? And then tear it. (laughs) Um, This smaller part of the card is for you to keep. It's a prayer reminder card. And um, later on, I'm going to give you a couple of specific prayer requests. And I'd be very grateful if you'd keep the card. And as you uh, see the card... Just remember to pray for the things that I'll mention to you. Um, the larger part is for you to fill out, and I would like you to turn it back in. As Pastor Lewis said, you can um, put it in, in, into the offering boxes, or if you want, you can give it to Ruth or to me. At the end, we'll be at, at, at a resource table with some materials there. This is my way of staying in touch with you. I want to make sure that you're receiving our Jews for Jesus newsletter. I have a very selfish reason for wanting to send it to you. I want your prayers. I think that as you read our newsletter, as you read about the ways in which God is using Jews for Jesus globally, I think you'll be provoked to keep us in prayer. We cannot do what we do unless people like you are praying for us. And I want you to know specifically how you can pray for us, so I want you to to be informed. If you're already getting the newsletter, I want to ask you to fill it out anyway. I won't send you two newsletters, but this way I can uh, check the database to make sure that we haven't lost you, to make sure that we have the correct information. And if you don't object, I want to take your names and your addresses or email addresses with me back to Budapest so that the Budapest brands can be praying for you. And so that uh, from Budapest, we can send you a note from time to time, an email, a postcard, letting you know specifically, immediately, the things that are going on so that you can stand with us. That's the equation. You pray, we proclaim, people hear the gospel and give their hearts to the Lord. Um, So please take a moment, even as I'm speaking, fill that out. You know, some people, when they hear about the the things that um, that we do, they... They say, gee, you Jews for Jesus are so aggressive. You're so ambitious. No, we're not. We're urgent. We're urgent because we understand that the time that we have to proclaim the gospel is finite. Um, 
Many people get discouraged with proclaiming the gospel. I want to talk with you about uh, why I waste my time proclaiming the gospel. But first, I want to tell you a story. Um, it's a good thing I'm wearing this because I'm going to wander a little bit. 1967, I was 16 years old. So for those of you who are good with mathematics, you'll quickly figure out how ancient I am. Uh, 1967, North America was shaken by what was probably the last genuine revival that, that hit North America. It was predominantly a North American phenomena. Uh, it spilled over a little bit into Europe, but it was predominantly a North American phenomena. In mission circles, we now call it the Jesus Revolution. And the strength of it was from about 1967 to 1977. During that time, in North America, millions of people gave their hearts to the Lord. Millions. And several thousand were young Jewish men and women like me. Um, many were um, disenfranchised, disillusioned, ex-radicals looking for a cause. We finally found the right cause. Jesus. <laughs> I remember 1967. I was 16 years old. I grew up in New York City. I was walking down uh, a street called 57th Street, just uh, in front of where the, something called Central Park begins. And there was this little old man leaning against the side of a building. And, as pe- and he had a paper bag in his hand. And, and as people walked by, he would put the, uh, his hand into the paper bag. He would take out a little piece of paper, and he would do this. And I'm watching this. And I thought, this is so weird. This has to have something to do with God. (laughs) So I took one of his pieces of paper. And on the piece of paper were the words of John 3.16. For those of you who have never read it, (laughs) it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And as a joke, I decided to memorize those words because I knew that no one in my circle of friends knew anything from the New Testament. To my knowledge, to my knowledge, that's the first seed that was sown in my heart. There may have been others, but that's the first seed that I know about. Eight years later, walking down the street in New York City, outside of the Port Authority bus terminal, what do I see? I see this young man wearing a dark blue T-shirt with these large words that say, Jews for Jesus, handing out religious propaganda. And I was livid. Because in my thinking, he epitomized everything that was, that was treasonous to our people. And I turned to a friend of mine who had already become a believer, and I said, someone should tell this bozo that you cannot be Jewish and believe in Jesus. My friend said, tell him yourself. (laughs) And my friend took one of his tracts and put it into my hands. I kept that tract for two years. There were more conversations along the way. Finally, in December 1976, I was given um, a copy of a book written by a Jewish believer in Jesus called The Messianic Hope, which traced the entire outline, development of the, um, 
of the Messianic theme, starting in Genesis and going all the way into the, uh, to the New Testament. And I put the book down, and I remember thinking at the end of reading that book that I was standing on the threshold of faith. I knew it was just a matter of time. Finally, in March 77, I gave my heart to the Lord. Seed upon seed upon seed, and none of it was wasted. None of it was wasted. Let me invite you to open up your Bibles once again to the passage that uh, Pastor Lewis read, Isaiah chapter 55. I'm going to concentrate on verses 10 through 13. Let me... uh, Read those passages, those verses once again. May I bear with me? Follow along in your own translation as I read from mine. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 10, where God says through the prophet Isaiah, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear fruit and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. I want to talk to you uh, about why I waste my time (laughs) proclaiming the gospel. Listen to me. Whenever the gospel is accurately proclaimed and accurately understood... God is always at work. In fact, God is always producing at least five biblical fruits. Always. Always. And that's what this text tells us. I want to talk with you about these five fruits that are always being produced whenever the gospel is proclaimed in any fashion. I'm not talking about methodology, whether it's a a tract, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a billboard, whether it's a book, whether it's it's a gospel song. I'm not talking about the methodology. It could be a conversation in a Starbucks cafe. I'm not talking about the, the methodology. I'm talking about the communication of the gospel message. And whenever the gospel message is communicated in any fashion, according to the scripture, God is always producing at least five fruits. If you know what those fruits are, you will never be discouraged. Never be discouraged. And maybe you're like me, you'll be excited about wasting your time proclaiming the gospel. (laughs) Um, Look at the text with me, would you? Verse 10. God starts with an illustration from nature. He says, for as the sun, uh, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In other words, he says, just as water has to fall down and just as it has to make the ground wet, it has to. It can't stay dry if the water falls on it. And just as something has to sprout, it has to. 
It has to. It's a law of nature. So he starts with an illustration from nature, which none of us has a problem with. And then he jumps over to the spiritual realm. And he says in verse 11, So will my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. It's a guarantee. But there's a caveat. There's a condition. According to the scripture, the fruit that will be produced is the fruit that God desires to produce. And he says his word will accomplish his reason for sending it forth. The reason that we get discouraged is because we decide to trust God at his word. And then we start talking about the Lord. And then we don't see the fruit that we desire and we conclude that something's wrong. Either we did something wrong or maybe God isn't really telling us the truth. The mistake that we made is that we decided on what fruit constituted success. He doesn't say that it will produce the fruit that we desire. It says it will produce the fruit that he desires. That's the caveat. That's the key. And if you know what these five fruits are, and if you understand that he is always at work producing these fruits, They'll never be discouraged. Never. So what are these fruits? Well, quickly, let me give you a summary. The first fruit I'll mention is the one that we all want to see. And that's the fruit of saving faith. When the gospel goes forth, someone somewhere in history gets saved, whether you see it or not. Whether you see it or not. That little old man in 1967, on 57th Street, the rest of his life, he had no clue as to who I am. But God is always producing saving faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. There's a caveat here as well. In order for the word of God to produce the fruit of saving faith. It has to be the word. What I mean by that is this. Uh, There's a lot of talk today, especially in this generation, uh, about the notion that it's not necessary to um, proclaim the gospel. Sufficient just to live the gospel. Listen to me. You can't live the gospel. You can't live the gospel. You can live a life that demonstrates that the gospel is true, and we should. That's not the gospel. That's the evidence that the gospel is true. People confuse the content of the message with the conduct of our lives. I'm going to say something that will offend some of you. The gospel is not a lifestyle. It's not a lifestyle. It's a message. It's a content-driven message that must be articulated and hopefully then corroborated, evidenced by the proof from our lives. 
You can say that there are two types of messages in the world. There are messages that are driven by content. There are messages that are driven by conduct. Let me give you an example of a conduct, lifestyle-driven message. Love. Love is a conduct-driven message. Ruth and I have a, um, a 13-month-old grandson. He knows he's loved. He knows he's loved, and he doesn't speak language yet, and he doesn't deal in concepts yet. But the way that his mother, our daughter, and, and our son-in-law, his father, relate to them every day, he knows he's loved. He understands that. He understands that by the way they relate to him, by their conduct. And when he's older and starts understanding concepts, he'll understand, oh, that's love. Love is a conduct-driven message. Now, let me give you an example of a content-driven message. Uh, I'm flying back to Budapest tomorrow. Uh, my first flight, it's going to be three flights. My first flight leaves from uh, Chattanooga at um, 7.55 in the morning. I'm checking in luggage, so I have to be there two hours in order to uh, check in. Um, let's say it's flight uh, United Airlines 123, all right? I have to be there two hours before. I have to be at the gate an hour before, because it's uh, going to be an international flight. And let's say that my life depends on being on that particular flight, just for the sake of drama. How are you going to get me onto that flight? Are you going to love me onto that flight? Are you going to get onto that flight by the way you live your life, by your conduct, by your conduct? your lifestyle? No, I'm going to get onto that flight if somebody gives me the information, the content that I need to know. And hopefully, I'll respond in the correct way, which is to believe the information and to show up in time at the right airport on the right day at the right time. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's a content-driven message. The gospel is a content driven message. People must understand certain facts about the gospel message. They have to understand who we are, that we are broken, that we are sinful, that we stand in judgment before a holy, righteous God, and that even if we want to change, we don't have the power to change our lives. We're enslaved People have to understand that Jesus, the Savior, the Rescuer, came. When he died on the cross, he paid the price that we deserve to pay. He took upon himself the everlasting wrath of God. And then he rose from the dead so that when we repent and ask him to forgive us, he can forgive us. He can say, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. And he not only rescues us from the judgment that we deserve, but he rescues us from the power that sin has over our daily lives because he gives to us his spirit, the very spirit that raised, who raised Jesus the man from the dead. He imparts to us living within our hearts so that we have power over the sin that has crippled us all of our lives. And he gives us an everlasting personal relationship with God the Father 
that begins the moment that we repent and that lasts into eternity. This is content. This isn't communicated by how we live. And people have to understand the content in order to believe it and repent. And hopefully our lives, the way we relate to people, will stand as proof that the gospel is true. Gospel is a content-driven message. It must be communicated. And whenever the gospel is communicated in any fashion, regardless of the methodology, God somewhere in history is producing saving faith in someone's life. Guaranteed. Second fruit that's always produced whenever the gospel message is communicated in any fashion. You're not going to like this one. It's the fruit of biblical division, polarization. Whenever the gospel is accurately communicated and accurately understood, division always results. Some will always be driven to Christ. Others will always be driven away and will rise up in opposition. Anywhere you look in Scripture, wherever God's truth is communicated, you always see those two phenomena. Always. It's biblical. It's proof that the gospel is at work. This is one of the reasons why Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. He's not talking about a literal sword, of course. He's talking about the sword of division, of forcing people to choose which side they're going to be on. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, to some, we are the smell of death unto death. And to others, we are the smell of life unto life. There's always division. I got into trouble one time. I was, I was invited to preach in a church in Switzerland. And uh, I made a little joke. You know. I said, you know, in Switzerland, the gospel is not good news. The gospel is bad news. Because once you hear and understand the gospel, you can't be neutral anymore. I thought it was funny. <laughs> Nobody laughed. <laughs> the communication of the gospel deprives us of the option of neutrality. We have to act upon it. Choosing not to act upon it when we understand it is a choice. It's the wrong choice. The gospel always produces biblical division. This is, this is why we have to proclaim the gospel in love. You know, the gospel itself, the message itself is so potent, it really doesn't need any additional stridency from any one of us. And so we proclaim the gospel in love, but we speak the truth in love. We must communicate the content. Biblical division is one of the fruits that God is always producing. Third fruit that I'll mention to you quickly is the, is the fruit of vindicating God's righteousness, vindicating his holy name, proving that he's righteous. Let me try to explain. God says to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 2, he says, go to this people. They're a stubborn, they're a stiff-necked people. And whether they listen to you or not, 
Did you get that one? Whether they listen to you or not, say to them, thus says the Lord, so that they will not be able to say that a prophet had never come to them. Day is coming when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And all will stand before him. And there will be some who will presume to say, oh, you can't judge me. I never had the opportunity to hear. And I suspect that he'll say with tears in his eyes, yes, you did. I gave you so many opportunities. How often I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't come. I remember some years ago, a colleague of mine was uh, sharing the gospel with a young Jewish woman. They were sitting in an outdoor cafe, and uh, my colleague, Laura, had the scriptures open, and she was sharing the prophecies, and it was clear that the word was getting through. And then suddenly, um, the young woman that uh, she was talking to, Sandra, I think was her name, she suddenly stiffened, and she said, well, what about, what about all the people who have never had a chance to hear? Laura correctly refocused the question where it needed to be. She said, we're not talking about people who have never had an opportunity to hear. We're talking about you and me. And you and I have heard. You've heard today. It's a frightening thought. But God uses us when we proclaim the message. God uses us as people's day of visitation. Do you understand what I mean? There are people whom you will, you will talk to and they will spurn you. And God might decide that that's it. You were their last moment. And when they stand before the Lord, they will not be able to say, I never had a chance. And in that way, we vindicate God's righteousness when he judges the living and the dead. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? That he's using us in such an awe-filled capacity. When you realize that, and you share the gospel with the person, and you're spurned. You'll cry. But you won't cry for yourself anymore. You won't cry because you've been rejected. You won't cry, oh, poor me. You'll cry for them. The way Jesus cried. For us. He wept over Jerusalem. And you'll pray, but you won't pray for yourself. You'll pray for them. Just like Stephen, as he was dying, prayed for the people killing him. Just like Jesus on the cross prayed for us and said, forgive them, they don't understand what they're doing. God uses us to vindicate his righteousness. 
no one will be able to stand before him and accuse him of unrighteousness. And we will have had the privilege of being used to be the agents by which his righteousness is upheld. What a privilege. That's fruit. It's the fourth fruit that's always produced whenever the gospel message is proclaimed. It's the fruit of keeping our hands clean and our consciences clear. Listen to what God says to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 33, verses 7 and 8. Speaking to Ezekiel, he says to Ezekiel, Now as for you, son of man, I've appointed you as a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require from your hand. Those are scary words. I think the Apostle Paul had those words on his mind when he stood before some of my ancestors in the synagogue in Corinth. You might remember the passage, Acts chapter 18. He's been reasoning for some weeks with us. And um, some are examining. But then it says that some blasphemed. That apparently was the point uh, of no return. When blasphemy was uttered, that's when Paul decided that his job was done. And he said a verse that some people read, they think he's pronouncing a curse, an imprecation upon us. He wasn't pronouncing a curse at all. He was stating a biblical principle found right here in these verses. He says, I'm clean. Now the blood is on your your hands, on your head. He was probably thinking of Ezekiel chapter 33. He understood that had he been silent, he would be accountable. But because he had spoken, he was clean. Now, what does it mean when it says in in Ezekiel that uh, if we're silent, God will require their blood from our hands? What does that mean? Those are terrifying words. What does it mean? Let me tell you exactly, theologically, what it means. I don't have a clue. And I don't want to ever find out. I want to be able to stand before the Lord and to say what Paul said to the Sanhedrin. I have lived my life to this day with a clear conscience before men and God. When we proclaim the gospel in any fashion, God uses our proclamation to keep our hands clean and our consciences clear so that we can say, I'm clean, I'm clean. I'll mention just one last fruit quickly. I think this is my favorite one next to the first one which I mentioned, which is the fruit of saving faith. Whenever the gospel message is communicated in any fashion, God is producing the fruit of conforming us into the image of his son. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. I think the best way I can explain this principle to you is by uh, telling you a story. Um, before Ruth and I moved to the Soviet Union, we lived um, in Los Angeles for a while in, uh, in the 80s. We had a house, and I remember one day, I don't know why, but I had to paint a room in the house. Now, you know, I'm not a physical kind of a guy. You know? 
So I was dreading it. I'm standing there in the room, and I'm looking at the walls, and our son, Joel, who was, I don't know, maybe four years old at the time, he walks into the room, and he, he looks at me, and he says, what are you doing, Dad? I said, oh, I have to paint this room. And his eyes got real wide. He said, can I help? Every fiber of my being wanted to cry out, no, <laughs> you can't help. Why not? Because if I were to let him help, what would happen? The job would take three times as long. I'd have to repaint everything he painted. I'd have to clean up all the paint that he was destined to spill. I'd have to clean him up. The logical thing, if my goal was just to get the task done, the logical thing was to say to him, no, Joel, you can't help. You can sit down, you can watch, but no, you cannot help. That's the logical thing to say. But for some obscure, unknown reason, I heard myself say to him, sure. And what happened? Well... It took three times as long to paint the room. I had to repaint everything he painted. I had to clean up all the paint that he spilled. I had to clean him up. And what else happened? He was imitating me. He was doing everything he could. to be just like me. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do what Jesus did. Be imitators of me, Paul said, even as I am an imitator of Christ. These five fruits are always produced. The fruit of saving faith, the fruit of biblical division, the fruit of vindicating God's righteousness, the fruit of keeping our hands clean, the fruit of conforming us into the image of his son. There are probably more, but those are the five that I've found so far. And as a result of that, we come back to Isaiah, as a result of that, what happens? Verse 12, you will go out with joy and be led, with for, and be led forth with peace, the mountains, the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. In other words, we go out with confidence, with joy, and with peace. Why? Because our labors are never in vain. And so it says in verse 13, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. It will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Not thorn bushes, but a cypress. Not nettles, but myrtle. Not vanity and chasing after the wind, but an everlasting memorial to the Lord. That's why Paul could write to the Corinthians. He could say to them, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because your labor in the Lord is never in vain. You know, there's really only one way that the proclamation of the gospel in any fashion, there's only one way 
that the gospel, that the, that the proclamation of the gospel can be fruitless. You know what it is? If it's not proclaimed. Guaranteed fruitlessness. Be silent. Guaranteed fruitlessness. But that's the only way that the word of God will be fruitless. If we choose to be silent. You know, I think from time to time about that little old man that I saw on 57th Street in 1967. I have only one regret. I can't remember his face. I'm not even sure if I really looked at his face. I can't picture what he looked like. I regret that. But when Jesus comes back, I'm going to know who he is. And I've decided in the kingdom, if we can do things like this in the kingdom, I'm going to come up to him. I'm going to come up to him from behind. And I'm going to tap him on the shoulder. And he's going to turn around and I'm going to stare at his face. And I'm going to say, in 1967, you gave a 16-year-old boy a piece of paper with the words of John 3.16 written on it. And God used that piece of paper to start changing that boy's life. And you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, I know, I read Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. So pray for us. Would you pray for us, Jews, for Jesus? Pray that we will never lose the certainty of knowing that our labors are never in vain. I would be lying to you if I said that uh, we don't struggle some people think that what we do is courageous. We're not courageous. We're just compelled to do what God has called us to do. Let's pray for us. Pray that we will never be silent. And that the message that we proclaim will always be the gospel. Pray for the follow-up work in Jerusalem. Pray for what we're planning for Europe in Berlin as well as uh, in Warsaw, Poland, 2019, September, we'll have a very large evangelistic outreach there. My hope is to have Jews for Jesus, Russians for Jesus, Poles for Jesus, and Germans for Jesus proclaiming the gospel shoulder to shoulder in a city where all of those people died in massive numbers during the Second World War and where the hatred and the pain is still very strong. Pray for us. Um, there's another way that you can stand with us. Let Ruth and me help you. Uh, I brought some, we brought some literature with us uh, on the resource table. Take a look and see if there's something there that, that you can uh, use. Um, 
I want to recommend a book, but I'm embarrassed to recommend it because I wrote it, but I'll recommend it anyway. Uh, Jews don't need Jesus and other misconceptions. Um, I've answered 18 objections that Christians give to us about why we don't need to bring the gospel to our people. But most of all, pray. Fill out that card. Uh, put the card into the offering or give it to Ruth or give it to me so that we can stay in touch with you. Join us in the adventure of Jews for Jesus. Let's pray. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, thank you so much for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you most of all for Jesus. I'd like all of you to keep your eyes closed just a moment, uh, would you? I'm presuming that